Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. Oh, Tracy, we talked about it on our last show. But because the world is kind of a mess, it's really, really gotten to be a tricky um, dance to figure out what seems appropriate for podcast subjects. Yeah. I mean, there have certainly been other times in our many years of working on the show where I've been like, man, it feels weird to talk about anything else. Uh, but none of those have been quite the ongoing, ever-present situation of living uh, in self-isolation in a pandemic. Yeah. Yeah, it's a a, a strange thing. I mean, I, part of it is that I think our head spaces are just different than normal. So even our perception of, like, the whole process of selecting topics shifts a little bit. <laughs> Uh yeah, I I am constantly having this this inner monologue of like uh is this how I would behave normally or is this because uh this is a stressful and weird time? Is this how I would behave normally? Is this what is this reaction something that like I I've lost all sense of what what normal is in terms of both my behavior and my judgment. Yeah. <laughs> so I was squirreling around and I you and I have talked about how a lot of our episodes uh, are kind of informed by the fact that we're living in these times. And in some ways they relate to the the world of contagious disease mm-hmm. and uh, the trajectory of, of medical knowledge throughout history. But then uh, this week I was kind of like, I really want to talk about something that's not that. Um, and then I was like, I know I'll do a mad royal. Uh, <laughs> people love those. Which then led me to, you will sometimes see her called Charlotte of Belgium and other times Carlotta of Mexico. Uh, She actually very consciously sort of made a name change in there. And part of the reason that the story of Charlotte and Maximilian of Mexico is sometimes a little lost in historical discussion is that it was playing out at the same time as the U.S. Civil War. And that event, the U.S. Civil War, also played a part in the events that led to Charlotte of Belgium becoming Carlotta of Mexico. Uh, the two of them are tied to basically all of the houses of Europe, so they were very connected to a lot of important history as well. We have an episode on Maximilian in our archive that will be an upcoming classic, uh, but Carlotta doesn't get a lot of discussion in it, uh, particularly her mental state and some of the things she was going through separate from her husband as things in their lives got very stressful. Uh, as I said, she is sometimes called Charlotte, sometimes Carlotta, depending on what biography you read. Uh, we are going to start by calling her Charlotte, and we will switch over to Carlotta in the narrative at the point where she herself herself started going by that name. And this one, I think, and I hope for everyone's entertainment and maybe a little bit of escape, has a mix of everything. There's some political history. There is a mad royal element. There's a very complicated marriage. Heads up, there is a little bit of concern about germs. (laughs) Um, There is some disregard for personal space as it relates to food safety. So if that is something that you're very uncomfortable with at the moment, understandably, just know uh, when we start talking about the Pope, maybe jump out for a little while. Princess Charlotte was born on June 7th, 1840 in Laken, Belgium, uh, with a very long name. Marie-Charlotte Amalie Augustine Victoire Clementine Leopoldine. I said that last bit almost as though she was more German. 
<laughs> her father was Leopold I of Belgium. Her mother was Princess Louise of Orléans. And Charlotte was named for Leopold's deceased first wife, the Princess Charlotte of Great Britain. And Charlotte's own mother died of tuberculosis in 1850. And from that point on, most of the maternal influence in her life came from her grandmother, Maria Amalia of Naples and Sicily. She was Queen of France through marriage to Louis-Philippe I. But Charlotte's father, Leopold, was very present. Uh, after his wife died, he spent more time with his children, although he wasn't necessarily good at it. But Charlotte, in particular, really worked to kind of gain his affections. And she seemed to be very fascinated by the nuts and bolts of his job as a ruler. And so they kind of became pals. In 1856, the teenage Charlotte, who was considered to be quite a beauty, met Archduke Maximilian when he visited Brussels. He was 24, a handsome naval officer, and a liberal idealist. Charlotte fell for him really almost immediately, and it was mutual. While Leopold I had been hoping for a marriage between his daughter and Portugal's ruler, Pedro V, he ultimately let Charlotte choose who she wished to marry. That choice, of course, was Maximilian. Uh, Incidentally, they were both cousins of Queen Victoria, who was initially against this match, calling Maximilian, quote, one of those worthless Habsburg archdukes. Uh, He was so charming, though, that he quickly won both Victoria and Albert over. And Maximilian continued to woo Charlotte while their royal houses worked out the business details of their marriage. That took about six months while things like dowries and and agreements in terms of the the union and what it would mean politically uh, were worked out. And as this happened, they essentially kind of dated. Maximilian would visit and he would tell the princess of his home, which he hoped would soon be hers. But then finally, on July 27th, 1857, at the age of 17, Charlotte married into the Austrian royal family. And in marrying Maximilian, Austrian Emperor Francis Joseph became her brother-in-law. Maximilian was his younger brother. The newlyweds left shortly after the wedding for Italy, where Maximilian had been appointed Viceroy of Lombardy and Venice. Charlotte really loved Venice, but the marriage wasn't quite as romantic as their courtship had been. It turned out that Maximilian had no intention of living a monogamous life. He frequently left Charlotte at home to go back to Austria, where his partying and womanizing were just really legendary. Exactly how Charlotte felt about this is a little bit unclear. Some biographies make it seem like Maximilian was the love of her life and that she tolerated his behavior because she was so devoted to him. When the Second Italian War of Independence broke out in 1859, Maximilian and Carlotta left Italy for Trieste, where Maximilian built the spectacular castle Miramar on the Adriatic Sea. And at this point, Trieste was still part of the Habsburg Empire. Later that same year, Maximilian decided to visit Brazil and left in November. Charlotte was with him, but when they stopped in Madeira on the way, Charlotte decided she would stay there. She could not really handle being at sea. But her husband happily continued on as planned, which eventually caused some problems for the two of them. The exact nature of their problems isn't really documented, but there have long been stories that Maximilian came back from Brazil with a sexually transmitted infection. Yeah, you can find all kinds of historical gossip about this situation and whether or not that infection resulted in one or both of them being unable to uh, have children. We don't really know. It's the kind of thing that's always referenced very uh, sort of obliquely 
but things did his his own account by his valet suggests that something happened in all of this that really kind of pretty much shut down the romance angle of their their relationship. And throughout all of this, though, to the outside world, Charlotte remained a doting wife, and the couple presented themselves publicly as deeply in love and still very devoted to one another. Whether or not Charlotte had looked the other way about his infidelities early on in their marriage, whatever happened in Brazil seemed to have been the last straw for her in terms of them having a physical romantic relationship. The private life of husband and wife became quite distant, and Charlotte actually moved into a separate bedroom from her husband, and she occupied her time with solo activities instead of being with him, like reading and swimming. But she also really longed for more. This wasn't a very happy life for her. For someone who had been so fascinated by politics and the work of governance when she was you know, at her, her father's side, she really wanted to have some actual work to do instead of just making public appearances to look like a dutiful wife. So seven years into her marriage, Charlotte's husband, Maximilian, was offered an opportunity by Napoleon III, and that was to be Emperor of Mexico. It's a big part of that uh, previous episode that we talked about at the top of the show that's going to be a Saturday classic soon. This idea had actually been floated to him several years earlier, in 1861, and Napoleon III hatched his plan to get a foothold in North America. This was not Napoleon's idea alone. A European ruler in Mexico had been discussed by the upper class there as soon as Mexico had gained independence from Spain in 1821. Those people had all prospered under Spanish rule. They wanted to have something like that again. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, for people that were kind of in the elite class, like to suddenly not have royal governance meant that they also didn't have royal favor, and it was very upsetting. Uh, At the end of 1861, Napoleon III did invade Mexico, claiming that the country had defaulted on its debts. Again, this is a much more complicated thing, which is discussed a bit more in that that classic that's coming up. The timing of the end of 1861 was no accident. The U.S., which had an alliance with Mexico, was too tied up with its own civil war to offer any aid to their neighbors to the south, particularly in terms of military force. So throughout the fall of that year, the French emperor had been setting his plan in motion and shoring up support from the conservative aristocracy of Mexico. A heavy investment in the effort enabled French troops to seize control of the country by force. It wasn't quite that quick, but that's basically how it played out. So this would appear to be Maximilian's time. And before we dig into that, we will pause for a quick sponsor break. Maximilian was actually not sure initially that he wanted to be emperor of Mexico. But he sought the counsel of his trusted friends and other European leaders, and even the Pope. Napoleon sent word to Maximilian on August 8, 1863, that he had been declared emperor by Mexico's National Assembly. And Maximilian uh, was a little bolstered by this in terms of being like, okay, I could run that country. But he also wanted there to be a popular vote to install him as emperor under a constitutional monarchy. And he insisted that as a condition of him stepping into the role, that French troops had to continue to protect all of the country's major cities and culturally significant sites for several years. And he did, incidentally, get that popular vote. Charlotte was really excited about this plan. She started studying Spanish and became fluent in it. She also studied the culture of Mexico, became knowledgeable about its art history, 
and she started to go by Carlotta, which is the name that she would officially take upon Maximilian's coronation. Yeah, she was multilingual already. She tended to have a gift for languages, so it's not especially surprising that she was like, well, time to learn Spanish. Uh, This appears, of course, to be a pretty significant move up in terms of power for Maximilian. Being a king is a higher rank than being an archduke. But if he took the throne as Mexico's ruler... His brother, Emperor Francis Joseph, insisted that Maximilian would have to renounce any claim or rights that he would have to the Austrian crown. And that also included any offspring that he may have. Like, basically, your family line is not part of the Austrian royal family line anymore. This was a really problematic point. And it was intended on uh, Francis Joseph's part to potentially reverse Maximilian's decision. Because... Uh, Francis Joseph did not think Mexico was a great idea. He thought it was kind of a terrible idea. And this almost worked. Maximilian almost backed out of the agreement rather than sever ties to his familial line. Charlotte, however, was pretty adamant that they follow through. And she did actually try to work something out with her brother-in-law so that Maximilian could retain his status or some sort of status in the Austrian royal family. But that did not accomplish anything. And by the time it was settled that it wasn't going to change, they were pretty much already committed to go to Mexico. On April 14th, 1864, Carlotta and Maximilian set out on their journey to their new home. The trip took more than a month. They got to Mexico on May 24th, and then they faced this 300-mile journey to get to Mexico City. They took that by rail, carriage, and horseback. Traveling through the rural areas in this way uh, made the deep class disparity of the country really apparent to the new rulers. Yeah, Carlotta was also very keenly aware of the racial segregation that seemed to be an inherent part of Mexico's setup at that time. That she, She noted that, like, there were no white people outside of the cities like they seemed afraid to go outside the cities and she was kind of noting all of this in her journal as kind of her preparation to think about what they could do as rulers but if Carlotta was expecting a new life of power and prestige she was probably a little bit disappointed uh there were some pretty lovely celebrations to greet them on their arrival and during their coronation Uh, But the Palacio Nacional was in pretty rough shape. That's the National Palace. It was not at all fit for royal residents. It had not been tended to in decades, and it had problems with mites. That problem was so bad that Carlotta slept out on a balcony and Maximilian slept on a billiards table just to try to get away from the bugs for a little while. They opted instead to move into Chapultepec Castle, but that was not a whole lot better at the time. It also hadn't been kept up for quite some time. They already had experience working with architects and designers and gardeners to create Miramar, though, so they were not daunted by the condition of this palace was they took on a similar project there. Yeah, and they actually did some really, really beautiful work there and and designed something really quite spectacular. The entire setup of Maximilian's reign in Mexico was uniquely odd, even aside from this being a case of European royalty kind of shoved into leadership in an overseas country through an occupation. Maximilian, as we mentioned, was very liberal in his political and social views. That was part of what Carlotta loved about him. But his backers in Mexico were actually the country's conservatives, including the church there. Mexico's liberal constituents backed the elected president, Benito Juarez, who did not give up his office after the French invasion. Instead, he went into exile. Juarez's supporters continued to fight French soldiers that were garrisoned in Mexico 
throughout the entire time that Maximilian and Carlotta were in power. Once the U.S. Civil War was coming to a close, the United States was able to turn its military attentions to Mexico. They backed the presidency of Benito Juarez. Simultaneously, the support that Napoleon III had initially proffered was slowly diminishing. He kept repositioning the loyalties and assets of France to whatever would suit his personal advantage. Things really quickly took a downturn for the emperor's fortunes. Yeah, uh, that U.S. involvement really, really shifted France uh, away in many ways. They they kind of were suddenly met with real resistance, and it was very scary. Uh, they couldn't any longer feel like they could just swoop in and take a, an unstable country. In February 1865, the New York Times ran an article about the precarious nature of Maximilian's reign. And do keep in mind that this is the point of view of a U.S. paper, which was supporting Juarez. But it wrote, quote, The second Mexican empire promises to prove as ephemeral as the first was durable. That of the Montezumas, which Cortez overthrew, had existed for centuries. But the empire, which the third Napoleon has founded for the benefit of the Habsburgs, already totters. On every side of Maximilian, the storm clouds are looming above the horizon. France was already cooling in its enthusiasm for financially supporting the establishment of an allied government in North America. But another big part of the problem was that Maximilian supported the idea of separating church and state. He intended to make that the law of the Mexican Empire. Naturally, the Catholic Church, which was hugely powerful in Mexico, was very strongly against this idea— As a consequence, Maximilian's greatest support not only vanished, but it turned to lobby against him. That same New York Times article that I just quoted went on to make very clear how doomed the emperor of Mexico was in going against the wishes of the church. It says, quote, If the champions of the priesthood cannot encounter the mercenaries of Maximilian in the field, their emissaries can traverse the country and prepare the way for that universal uprising which bids fair to overwhelm the usurper by sowing the seeds of disaffection in the minds of the people nor have the church part confined themselves to isolated action and the incitement of insurrection, but have actually made advances to some of the Republican chiefs and invited them to make common cause with the clergy against the oppressor of Mexico. When a union of the clerical and Republican parties is once effected, the whole nation will be virtually leagued against him and the fate of the second Mexican empire will be sealed. Even now, the ground is beginning to slip from under his feet. Maximilian was really trying not to let that happen. He toured Mexico, trying to connect with the people and win their favor back. He and Carlotta adopted two Mexican children, the grandsons of one of the country's previous rulers, to try to ingratiate the emperor to the people. That backfired because the mother claimed that she had been pressured into this whole arrangement and that the emperor and empress had stolen their children. Yeah, she actually was exiled as part of that deal. Uh, She will crop up again in a moment briefly. Things were going clearly pretty badly uh, from bad to worse for Maximilian and Carlotta. And we're going to delve into how things went really south after we pause for a word from our sponsors. In 1866, things in Mexico truly began to fall apart. 
Napoleon III was unable to keep France's footing in the country as the uh, Mexican people resisted European occupation. And he stopped all of France's promised financial backing for the newly established monarchy. And then the majority of the French troops were recalled. Carlotta found herself in an incredibly stressful situation. Even before Napoleon III's decision to leave her and her husband without any help from France, she was already grieving the recent death of her father. And then her husband, who again had no claim to the throne in Austria, was considering abdicating. Yeah, which would have left them really with no real position of power. It's not like they would have been destitute. They still had connections to the royal houses of Europe, but it would have significantly um, basically left them in a a really awkward position. So Carlotta kind of took matters into her own hands. Her husband was involved, but after consulting with him and the two of them laying out a plan for how they could rebuild the monarchy and bolster the country's finances, she kind of had all of these documents and essentially like spreadsheets of the day. Uh, She set sail for France to speak directly with Napoleon III and make her case. And this did not go as planned initially or really at all. Uh, But she arrived in August 1866, ready to meet with the emperor, but she had been told that he was simply too ill to receive her and that maybe he could talk to her later. But she was adamant that she had to speak with him, so she got herself settled in Paris and prepared to wait until he was better all the while kind of poking at things to try to make sure that she got a meeting. She was able, in the meantime, to meet with Empress Eugenie, and it was through her that Carlotta was finally able to get FaceTime with Napoleon III. And at this point, she also had a meeting with Alice Green Iturbide, the mother of those two adopted sons. And that meeting was as tense as you might imagine. Alice was asking for her children back. Carlotta flatly refused. There were three meetings. They did not go very well. In the first meeting, Carlotta opened by saying, Sir, I came to save a cause, which is your own. She described to Napoleon III the details of the arrangement that he had agreed to with Maximilian, the ongoing strife in Mexico between the liberals and the conservative royalists, and the failure of France to hold up their part in all this. He told her that holdups with his ministers were the problem and that he would plead her case. He totally sidelined her. Oh, God, it's, I, I hear you. My guys are so busy. They haven't gotten that contract worked out. Um, a few days later, she met with him again. And this time, she kind of upset Napoleon and insulted him by recounting all of the promises that he had made back to him. And then she got in a very fevered discussion with his finance ministers, who explained that the entire Mexico effort had nearly ruined the country of France. Carlotta threatened that they would abdicate if they had no help, and Napoleon III, calling her bluff, said, then abdicate. The last meeting that Carlotta had with Napoleon III was mostly her making the case that France should be deeply invested in Mexico's prosperity, and the emperor telling her flatly that France had no money to give her or her husband or their country. The end. The pressure of all of this really began to manifest in a series of bizarre behavior for Carlotta. The strain of it had just a completely deleterious effect on her mental state. Having been refused help by people that she thought cared about her and her husband, she started to exhibit signs of paranoia. She began to send letters back to her husband, insisting that Napoleon III was possessed by the devil, and she also believed that assassins were after her. After her efforts in Paris went so poorly, 
Carlotta traveled to Trieste and then, at her husband's urging to Rome to talk directly to Pope Pius IX about their problem, it was hoped that he could use his influence to get France to honor its financial promises, but her behavior in Rome really only made a mess of things. From the moment she arrived in Vatican City, Carlotta's conduct wavered between nervously exhibiting sort of the grace and decorum that one would expect of royalty and someone of her position, and then moments where she just completely abandoned social mores. She was granted a meeting with the Pope, but when that was over, she was left really deflated. There was not a lot that the papal state could do for her cause. The next day, her behavior was at times angry and at other times defeated. And then at a formal dinner that night, she declared, seemingly out of nowhere, it is obvious that someone is trying to poison me. She believed 100% that there was someone on her staff that was trying to poison her and that the Pope was her only possible protection. The morning after that dinner where she had that outburst, she barged into the papal apartments to tell the Pope of this alleged treachery. She had not been eating because of her fear of poison, and Pius IX, seeing that she was unsettled, asked if she wouldn't like something to eat. He had been having breakfast with a cup of hot chocolate when she got there, and she declared that she was starving, dipped her hand into his cup of hot chocolate, and then sucked the liquid off of her fingers. The Pope ordered a second cup, initially intending it for Carlotta, but she was insistent that she would only drink from the same vessel as he was because of this whole poisoning concern. He was able to calm her down and get her to speak about the struggles that Mexico's installed monarchy was facing, but she kept asking him about poison antidotes through the whole conversation. Uh, He always suggested that prayer was an antidote. Pope Pius IX recognized that Carlotta was obviously not okay, and he attempted to put sort of a plan together to help. He did not react harshly. He kept his cool. He had two doctors come to see her, but in his note to the cardinal that he had asked to arrange for those people to come, Pius IX asked that the doctors introduce themselves as chamberlains because he feared if they came in and said they were doctors there to examine her or her mental state that Carlotta might become even more upset. Because Carlotta was also suspicious of her staff, the Pope asked the Cardinal to also have her apartments cleared of everyone so they could tell her the assassin had been dealt with. Cardinal Antonelli also reached out to her brothers, Leopold II, King of Belgium, and Philippe, Count of Flanders. In the meantime, the Pope kept her calm and busy by escorting her around the Vatican and showing her various pieces in the art collection, as well as the gardens. She spent a very peaceful afternoon there, and she appeared to have relaxed back into her more normal self and to have stopped being agitated, and she was informed that the suspected assassins were gone, so she consented to go back to her hotel. But once she arrived there, uh, she noticed that the keys had been removed from the, the interior of the rooms, and she became convinced that someone was going to lock her in and kill her. And so she ran out and fled back to the Vatican. She begged, and this was late at night, to be allowed to stay in the papal apartments, which was completely unheard of for a woman. But Pius IX instructed his staff to break with decorum and set up a bed for her in the library. She was given a sedative in a cup of warm milk, and she slept peacefully for probably the first time in months. Although the Pope accommodated her that night, he had really reached his limit in trying to deal with the situation. The next day, she wanted to spend it with him. She refused to eat unless it was in the Pope's company. 
those pleas went unfulfilled, she became certain that she had been poisoned, and before leaving the papal apartments, she wrote out several documents. One was a letter to her husband that said, quote, my darling, I am taking leave of you. God is calling me to him. She also left a note to the Pope asking for last rites, and then she put together a quick will. She also left another note about her final wishes regarding burial, uh, she still wouldn't leave the apartments, though. Yeah, incidentally, in that uh, that last wishes note, she also asked that she not be autopsied, which is interesting for someone who believes they have been poisoned. Uh, so as kind of an, an effort to get her out, she was invited to visit a nearby orphanage. This was a ruse that was cooked up to get her out of those living quarters. And she agreed. She was actually really good with the children, by all accounts. But once she was in the kitchen there... She reached her hand into a boiling stew pot to snatch a piece of meat that she believed could not have been poisoned, and in the process scalded her hand, and then she fainted from the pain while the nuns were trying to treat her. Her burns were treated, and she was put into a papal coach before she regained consciousness. When she awoke en route to her hotel, she panicked and began yelling murder. She was forcibly taken from the coach to her rooms at the hotel, and there she only allowed her maid, Mathilde Dobligé, to stay with her. The days that followed this were just a time of very intense stress for everyone involved. Carlotta was continually fearful about poisoning. She had two live chickens brought to her rooms where they were tethered to a table uh, until Mathilde killed and prepared and cooked them while Carlotta watched her. She had a cat brought in as well to taste her food before she ate it. Yeah, and in the midst of all of this, like, her staff was actually still working behind the scenes. They weren't there with her in the apartment because they knew she would be upset. But, like, the the Pope's cardinals and everyone were trying to, like, work without her knowing to try to make sure all her needs were met. She had some visitors, uh, and at some point, she seemed more or less her normal self, although she had lost a good deal of weight, and she was very pale. But then others who came to see her found her in a much more unhinged and disheveled state. She also made arrangements to have much of her staff fired for suspicion of this plot that she believed was, was happening against her. And then finally, after several days of this, on October 7th, her brother Philippe arrived. Carlotta talked to him really all night. She refused to sleep, even with her brother there. In the morning, they left. They went arm in arm to the train station. She wondered where her staff had all gone, apparently forgetting that she had dismissed them. A telegraph was sent to Maximilian in Mexico, which read, quote, Her Majesty the Empress Carlotta on October 4th was attacked by a very serious cerebral congestion. The Auguste Princess has been conducted to Miramar, Carlotta was never to go to Mexico or to see her husband again. And Maximilian, of course, had his own problems. He was not in the greatest mental shape as he tried to figure out what to do, still waiting in Mexico and hoping that help would arrive from Europe. And he had also been physically sick. He had dysentery and malaria. He also had ongoing liver and respiratory issues. But... It turned out, uh, referencing back to that rumor that one or both of them might not be able to have children, he also welcomed a son while Carlotta was abroad. Uh, that was a child he had with his mistress, Concepcion Sedano. In mid-October, Maximilian received both the information of Carlotta's mental deterioration 
and the news that uh, she had been taken to Miramar Castle in Trieste. She was under the care of doctors there. In the press back home, Carlotta was reported as having meningitis. Maximilian considered the possibility of using his wife's illness as an opportunity to abdicate and kind of save face, saying that he needed to go to her. Ultimately, though, he decided to stay in Mexico and fight Benito Juarez's forces. That decision was a very bad one. Maximilian, only with a limited fighting force, was easily defeated. He was found guilty at his court-martial and sentenced to death. And though many notable figures made the case with Benito Juarez to spare Maximilian's life, he was ultimately executed by firing squad on June 19, 1867. His last words were, Mexicans, men of my class and origins, are appointed by God to be the happiness of people or their martyrs. Called by some of you, I came for the good of the country. I did not come for ambition, but animated by the best wishes for the future of my adoptive country, for the brave who died in glorious sacrifice. Mexican people, I hope that my blood will be the last to be spilled, and I pray that it regenerates this unhappy country. Viva Mexico! Viva la independencia! Charlotte lived the rest of her life pretty much in isolation. After Maximilian's death, her family moved her back to her birthplace at the castle of Lac in Belgium. She wasn't informed of Maximilian's execution for fear of how she might react. It's unclear if she was ever given a truthful account of how the Second Empire of, Me- of Mexico had fallen. She went through some cycles of lucidity and psychosis throughout the years as her condition worsened, and she was moved to Castle Treverin outside of Brussels. Castle Treverin burned in 1879, and Carlotta was moved once again, this time to Bouchou Castle in Maize, Belgium. She would live there in seclusion for the next 48 years of her life, including through World War I, when the Austro-Hungarian flag flying over the castle saved it from attack by German troops. In early 1927, Carlotta developed pneumonia. She died on January 19th of that year, at the age of 86. She had lived her life really isolated since she was 27 years old. Her family had kept her uh, out of everyone else's view. Yeah, there are accounts, like, written by nieces and nephews that went to visit her and, like, other family members, but we don't really have uh, much about what was going on with Carlotta herself. And if we did, I I don't, there's no telling if it would be terribly lucid or even, like, trustworthy as a reflection of of really what she was going through. It's a, a bizarre thing. It was one of those things where, as I was researching this, I did not realize that she had gone into isolation for decades as we were having this isolation talk and what should we do? Oh, yeah. It's like, oh, maybe this wasn't quite as escapist as I had hoped. I also feel like it's um, one of the sadder, like so, some of the the mad royal episodes are really heartbreaking and awful. And some of them are more just like eccentric. <laughs> right. Hers is more heartbreaking. Yeah, hers is sure. more on the sad end of the spectrum for sure. Yeah, it absolutely is. She, um, you know, she was considered to be such a, like, smart, bright, really marvelously interesting person when she was younger. And if things had gone differently, like, she could have lived a completely different life if they had stayed in Europe instead of going to Mexico. There's a lot of ifs that we can never know, right? This is Milan Kandira's unbearable lightness of being. You only get one series of choices in life, and you can't see how the other ones play out. Um, it's one of those things where she kind of gets really sequestered away and they kind of like 
just pretend she's not there for the rest of the time. Uh, some of her family visited, but not all. So it is quite sad. Yeah, I'm sorry I unleashed a sad one on us. Do you have some less sad listener mail? I do. It's cute. Um, this is uh, from our listener, Karen, who heard a reference to a topic we had talked about in a previous episode on another podcast. Uh, she writes, hello, I was listening to the Love It or Leave It podcast from March 28th, and they had people calling in with weird new hobbies that they have started during this time of staying at home. About 24 minutes into that episode, they talked to a high school student from Kentucky who had been told that Chester A. Arthur might be an ancestor. So she decided to do an ancestry deep dive. They discussed the question of his birth date and the claim that he was born in Canada, not Vermont. Then the next caller, who was a teacher from Missouri, was working on a Google Doc with the horoscopes of all the U.S. presidents. So they brought the previous caller back to share some facts about Chester A. Arthur. Sorry your podcast was not mentioned, but I thought you would find this amusing. I do. Um, I haven't gotten a chance to listen to it yet, but now I want to just to hear what, what the horoscope person says about U.S. president, <laughs> because that sounds fascinating to me. Uh, and, you know, I'm always glad to shout out another podcast on the show. Uh, I thank you, Karen, for pointing that out, because I will go check it out. If you would like to write to us, you can do so at historypodcast at iheartradio.com. You can find us everywhere on social media as Missed in History. And if you would like to subscribe to the podcast, you can do that on the iHeartRadio app, at Apple Podcasts, or wherever it is you prefer to listen. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.